It's hard to think of anything more defining of life today than the way technology invades every crack and crevice of our days, from that first text message in the morning to the last check of the news or social media at night. The speed and capabilities that technology gives us offer immense benefits. But I think deep down, most of us also sense that it carries significant costs too, including costs we may not yet fully understand. In this episode of Justice in the Inner Life, we'll explore how our technology habits might affect the health of our inner life. We'll also consider choices and new habits that can help us make good use of technology while protecting things that matter even more. Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medifin. Today I'm joined by Andy Crouch, former editor with Christianity Today and now a senior strategist with the Templeton Foundation. I regard Andy as one of the most incisive Christian writers and thinkers of our day, as well as a friend I deeply respect. Andy, welcome to Justice and the Inner Life. Thank you, Judd. This is going to be a really fun conversation. Absolutely. So this podcast, as you know, is rooted in the idea that vibrant ministry flows from a healthy soul. And if we desire to serve our neighbors well and and, and really to sustain that work, especially in the most broken and hurting places in our world, then the health of our inner spiritual life isn't just peripheral. It's not just icing on the cake. It's really the wellspring Mm. of everything else we do. So tending our inner life is is more important than anything we can do. Um, But it's pretty clear that today our relationship with technology, smartphones, computers, social media, all the other things, um, really can significantly <laughs> impact. It up. Yeah, it's 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 really gumming up the works there. And so our capacity to pay attention to and cultivate our inner life is deeply affected by these things. So I know you've been doing a lot of research and writing and thinking about technology recently, including a great new book that I just read, The Technology Wise Family, which I would highly recommend to anyone. But but uh, let's wade in. Let's start with the big picture. So most of us, you know, today we love our technology and and what it gives us, and yet we also feel like it may be taking a larger share of our lives than is healthy. What what are you seeing as you're digging into this? <laughs> well, I think the situation is dire, at least in my own life and heart and story. I mean. Uh, I mean, let, let me take two stabs at this in a way. One, uh, just one statistic. We did a lot of research for this book, The TechWise Family, and, and one of the things we discovered is that, uh, depending on the age range, and it goes down as you get older, if you start with teenagers, um, 80, 80 plus percent, I think it's 82 percent of teenagers sleep with their phones next to them. Mm. And that goes down to about 65 percent for their parents, uh, and a little, uh, in between for middle school or, you know, kind of young kids. Um, and I was doing this. <laughs> and, uh, when you do that, of course, what you do is you go to bed to your phone and you wake up to your phone. Mm-hmm. And so the last thing you see at night is this glowing rectangle. And the last thing you see, or the first thing you see in the morning is this glowing rectangle. And, uh, friends of mine got engaged and, uh, my, my friend, his, his fiance gave him a card that said, uh, I can't think of anyone I would rather, uh, lie in bed staring at my phone next to for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so this, um, 
kind of option of connectivity that's now it's not even you know you and i are both old enough to remember when you had to sit down at the computer to go on the internet Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's that has been replaced by a presumption of connectivity really and not even just an option and that of course affects our connections to other people if we're married for example like that uh, card (laughs) our spouse um but also even more fundamentally to God and to ourselves and to those moments of silence and openness and um, kind of unpredictable, uh, in a way, emptiness that are where the inner life, I think, is cultivated. Uh, another way to think about it is, you know, I think the three classic core essential disciplines of the Christian life from taught by basically every saint ever have been solitude silence and fasting um and if we leave aside fasting for a moment although i actually think it may connect as well if solitude and silence are are essential parts of becoming the kind of person who's available to god and to others um there is nothing in the history of humanity other than our own kind of uh, built-in mental apparatus, I suppose, which is always churning and worrying. There's nothing that has more effectively interrupted our capacity to be alone Mm -hmm. and our capacity to be genuinely silent, which I don't think just means not talking, but actually not sort of verbalizing, not not reacting. Um, And even if you think about the complements to solitude, silence, and fasting, which are community, conversation, and feasting, there's nothing that has disrupted those more. So um, conversation, I mean, Sherry Turkle has this really important book, uh, Reclaiming mm-hmm. Conversation, about the way that our devices interrupt our conversations so often uh, that we never get to real depth in our conversations because we become so accustomed to letting the other person opt out and check their phone that we just keep the conversation shallow. And of course, these things, although they give us a sensation of being connected to other people, uh, and that's a simulation and a sense of community, and I don't want to deny there's some real value to the connection we have with other people through our devices, they prevent us from being uh, fully present in our bodies with other people <laughs> the way we were, I think, designed to. So, sorry, a bit of a long answer, but like from the very practical, like do you sleep with the thing, to the very sort of um, architectural, the way that these devices interrupt the three essential disciplines of withdrawal and also the disciplines of connection, uh, they're really, really threatening uh, our healthy lives, I think. Yeah, and, and so – would you, would there be a way to distill this and say, okay, these are all symptoms? There, you know, we, we kind of can describe these phenomena that we see in terms of how much time people spend online, the, the, the phone by the bed, uh, the way it interrupts. These are all kind of symptoms. Is there something kind of that you feel like is the distilled essence of what is happening? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, sometimes when you have a bunch of symptoms, you call it a syndrome. I mean, that's sort of the word the medical profession uses for something that we know is going wrong, but we can't just decide it's one thing. And I suspect in a way that there there are multiple layers to this. I'm not sure it is just a single thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but but if I had to guess what is at the root of it, it's in the way that all technology promises to make our lives easier and and does make our lives easier in lots of evident ways. I mean, you and I are having mm-hmm. a conversation across yes. three time zones right now that would have been categorically impossible even really 
15 years ago to have it at the level of fidelity yeah, we're having it, yeah. let alone 115 years ago. Um, so technology does make our lives easier, but, and, and that's not all bad. There's lots of value to that value creation, we might say, in terms of uh, productivity and uh, all kinds of things. The only problem is um, they're so good at doing it that we start to think that a better life is an easier life. So Jeff Fowler writes on technology for the Wall Street Journal, just an offhand comment in in some you know column just a, a week or two ago, said, well, of course, these devices have made our lives better. And and that was just like taken for granted. I'm like, really? Is that? Because he's equating easier with better. Yes, exactly. And who doubts that when our lives get easier, for one moment, we feel this kind of thrill of, ooh, that was easy. You know, that was so nice. You know, it's like the Staples button. You know, you you hit it and supposedly things get easier and you're like, oh, that's great. The only thing is human beings equilibrate so fast to easy that easy is actually pleasant exactly once. Like the first time it's easy, you're, you actually do feel this sort of rush of satisfaction and pleasure. But then that becomes your baseline. And and then life is no better because it stays at that level of easy. And instead, you start getting addicted to easy. And you start thinking, what I really need in my life is more easy. And now you're really on the path to a, a very profound deception, which is actually for my life to be better, it's probably going to have to get harder in, in significant ways. I'm going to have to open myself up to more vulnerability than I would normally choose. And, and it's not that our devices prevent us from doing that. We could, we can still choose the good, hard, vulnerable life. It's just that the presence of these devices in our world gives us this kind of mental architecture, I guess, that says a good life would be an easy life. And that, I think, is at the heart of what makes them so seductive and powerful and and dangerous. Even though I also want to emphasize, I think in lots of ways, they're good and helpful. And, you know, as as tools, they're great. But as a paradigm for life, they're very Mm, dangerous. Yes, yes. Well, and so, you know, Neil Postman talks a lot about how the dominant mediums we use really shape our, not just our interaction with the world, but our understanding of the world. So if, if the dominant paradigm of these various tools we're using is easy is always better, then that becomes more and more saturated with just what we think about every facet of life, I imagine. Right. I mean, like, uh, one of the things Sherry Turkle points out is, is, uh, people, uh, especially the young, younger folks who just grew up with this, um, with this technology, uh, uh, express a great preference for texting in relationships rather than conversation. And the, and when she probes and asks, well, why do you prefer to text rather than to talk? Um, they say, well, when I, when I am texting, I'm in control of what I communicate. So, you know, I might prefer to do this interview by text, right? Because you're going to ask me questions. I mean, I have some idea of what they'll be, but but if this conversation is worth anything, you'll say something at some point to me and I'll say something to you that we didn't expect. And then we'll be out of control. And the device gives you the option to always control how you present yourself, how you interact. And it takes away that very awkward reality of being a human being, which is that you will even, uh, you know, if we're together in person in particular, you'll notice an expression cross my face for just a, an instant that I didn't even know was there, whether it's annoyance or boredom or distraction. And you'll know something about me I didn't give you permission to know in a way, except by letting you be with me. Uh, I mean, this is essential to real relationship. But 
the device paradigm says, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll get rid of that. We're going to make it easier. You'll always be in control. I think ease and control are very connected. Mm-hmm. Keywords there. Yeah. And they just have nothing to do with what it is to be deeply human. Uh, <laughs> that's just, that's the only problem. Other than that, great. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hone in on one facet of this. So your, your book really centers on family life in particular. And, and I feel like just does a wonderful job, um, talking about what the, the purpose of family is to grow people of wisdom and courage and, and to, to cultivate, uh, what it means to be persons formed in the image of God. Um, one facet of that, of course, is, is our inner life and the health within that is, um, that ultimately is, is, as Jesus alludes to, is, is the wellspring of everything else. That, that, that's where all things, but, but maybe as in this conversation, we're talking specifically about ministry and engaging the hurts of this world, whether that's combating human trafficking or, um, serving children in foster care, working with juvenile offenders, having the, the fortitude and the patience to continue in that work, uh, that they would see love in our eyes, even when we're so frustrated with things they've done, that yeah. that is all coming out yeah, of something yeah, yeah. deeper. So share, share a little bit about some of your reflections on that intersection of technology with the inner life and, and our either capacity to attend to it or, or our inability to, to perhaps even remember that it's, that it's there. <laughs> well, I wonder if this actually connects to the, um, the third of the disciplines I mentioned, which is fasting, which at one level you would think, well, my devices don't prevent me from eating or fasting. I mean, they don't have anything to do with food, you would seem. Except that I will say of those three things, solitude, silence, and fasting, fasting is the one for me. Maybe I'm thinking about this because we're talking in the mid-afternoon Eastern time and I didn't get to lunch yet today. So I'm involuntarily doing a little bit of fasting, even as we speak, a a very, very minor amount. Um, And you know what happens when I uh, either kind of accidentally, like today, or quite deliberately um, don't eat is all these things surface uh, from, I mean, in my mind, you might say, but also even sort of in my gut or my gut feeling, as we call it, uh, anxieties, um, grudges, <laughs> uh, things that I regret, fantasies, um, sort of flights of imagination of a, a different life that isn't actually my life. And they only come up when I haven't medicated myself sufficiently with food. <laughs> uh, it's when I withdraw for a while that comfort of food that sort of keeps those things tamped down that they surface. And of course, that's when I really discover what my real inner life is made of. Because uh, all that stuff is there. All of it is unknown to me, still shaping how I react unconsciously to you and to every other person I meet, especially how I re- re- react to stress, right? Um and, you know, here's the thing. I can, I can medicate or cover that up with, with food, uh, and many other things, uh, alcohol and other things, but I can also do an, a very effective job of covering that up with, uh, my glowing rectangle, <laughs> which is always with me, always has something stimulating to offer me, always will sort of overwhelm that still small voice inside me with very bright, loud, engaging, fast changing voices outside of me. And, uh, if I don't develop ways to turn that off and discover what's inside, which then becomes the grist really for conversation with God and other people, like, oh my goodness, I did not realize I was still angry about that. Or, 
God, I didn't know I was so fearful about whatever came up. I don't have an inner life. All, I mean, I don't have access to it. I have it, but it's, it's unexamined. It's un, it's unaddressed. It's unhealed. Um, you know, we have, we human beings, it's, I just think it's a, I think it's the way we're wired that we, uh, capture and rehearse negative stimuli much more than we capture and rehearse positive stimuli. Uh, so I've written three books before this one. They've been reviewed by lots of people and, you know, people say various things about them. I can almost quote you word for word every negative thing that's been said about everything I've ever written. It's not a huge corpus of negative things, but, you know, people have said negative things. Uh, there's things to critique, right? I, that is probably 5% of what's been written about my stuff. Most of what people write is very positive. You know, we know that on Amazon, like the average rating is four and a half stars, right? So, but I can tell you the details of every one star review because we, re- we capture and retain and rehearse negative stimuli much more than positive. And, and because those things are distressing to us, we then tamp them down and cover them up with all kinds of coping mechanisms. And these devices we now all have with us all the time are the like champions at helping us avoid, well, sometimes they present more negative stimuli to us uh, that we then capture and rehearse, but they also help us just uh, modulate it away, not pay attention to it and thus not grow from it when it, and, and that then means that we're put in further stressful situations, um, which happen in the kind of work we're talking about. Any kind of encounter with injustice, with, it, with the, either the perpetration of injustice or the effects, the after effects of it, the trauma of it, these are highly stressful things to encounter. And if I haven't developed a deep repertoire of ways to respond to that stress, I'm just going to respond in my automatic way that I won't even know that I'm doing it. And I really think this is, um, this is a real danger of all this stuff that allows me to never face it. Even, uh, even if I'm fasting, I can be looking at my iPhone now. <laughs> it's not so bad. I can, I can handle it. If I've got Netflix, I'm good. <laughs> right. So there's the, that first, that first element is simply just having to confront these yeah. things. And then yeah. second, mo- and, and ultimately, most importantly, confront them in the presence of God and see them through the lens of the lens of, of his, his power of justice, of history, of grace. And, and we are completely unable even to begin the process of engaging those deeper things and the hurts and the wounds both we bear and the world bears if we are not able to step away from the noise, the distraction, the continual, whether it's self-medication or just, just kind of noise. Yeah. And I, you know, I have to say, I don't know how you think about this. Um, but I, I mean, I absolutely believe in an inner life, <laughs> first of all, but at least in my life, the only progress I've made in my inner life has been also in conversation with other people. Like I, in a way I have to have this rhythm of silence and conversation of solitude and community and really of fasting and feasting, uh, which is also also a communal thing, right? Mm-hmm, We're not talking about mm-hmm. gorging yourself on ice cream at 2 a.m. Um, and all those involve letting other people into my life. And, and I think another thing that happens, um, with all these devices, they're all mediated. So a media means to put something in the middle, uh, between it's just the Latin word comes from the Latin word for middle. 
And basically what all media do is they interpose some kind of technology. It can be as simple as writing. Writing is a form of, of a kind of medium between two embodied human beings. So if you and I were present in the same room together, we would have an immediate, roughly immediate conversation. There's actually some interesting footnotes to that it's mediated by air and sound for one thing. And also Bonhoeffer would say, uh, in his amazing book, Life Together, about community, actually, you should never want an immediate relationship with another person. Christ is always our mediator between us, even when we're together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still the case that if we were together in the flesh, we would, uh, we'd not be interposing any technology between us. And, and there's a richness to that encounter that is, I think, unsubstitutable. You can't mm-hmm. have relationship in all of that it's meant to be any other way. When most of my relationships happen through a screen, even if it's a video conference, which is, you know, relatively high bandwidth, uh, it's not enough to have the full encounter we were made for. But it's enough to satiate our, our desire for it. So just by looking mm-hmm. at my friends' pictures on Instagram, I can sort of feel connected to my friends. <laughs> and it can sort of quench my thirst to actually be with another human being. But if I don't build in times to my life where I am deeply intentionally present with another human being, I'm going to, I don't think actually I can make much progress on that inner life either. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's maybe the other threat is, is the medicating threat is one. And then the, the substitution of something that feels enough like embodied relationship that it satisfies us for the moment that actually leaves us not having experienced the conversations that would unlock what's actually inside and that needs to be brought out for others in God. One key way that the Lord works to cultivate our hearts and our inner life is through other people. And if we yeah. feel like we've got en- just enough of other people, yes. that we, we don't need to be a part of deep community that has the frictions and the encouragements and all yes. those things, then, yeah, then we will totally miss out on that part of what grows us within. Yeah, so, yeah. so all of this, this calls out for habits that cut against the grain. You know, if, and of course that we could go on and on about the consequences of technology <laughs> right. in our lives, both for our, you know, for our relationships, for our family life, but also for our inner life. Um, but if we are, if we are going to swim upstream and cultivate health within and be whole beings that have more to offer to others than just a kind of an echo of that noise and distraction that we're immersed yeah. in, yeah. if we're going to be able to do that, it's going to take certain habits that are very different. Than the, than the world lives typically in regard to technology. So let's explore that a little bit in terms of some of the things that you have, have chosen in that regard for, you know, for your family life and personally. Well, so here's the one that I wasn't doing when I started writing the book and that I really have started to do. And I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed it took writing a book about technology <laughs> to actually decide to do this. Uh, but that's what it took for me. And it's super simple. Uh, so I was sleeping with my phone next to my bed. Now I didn't, too often, like just, you know, look at it all night or whatever. I think teenagers are very tempted to that. Um, and it's a real issue for teenagers. I mean, I had enough discipline to kind of ignore it while I slept, but I would then pick it up as I got up. I'd be, I'd, as I was walking downstairs, I'd, it would already be glowing at me with whatever notifications I got. I'd be checking Twitter. I'd be looking at email and like these were the first moments of my day. Um, and so I decided. 
uh, what I'm going to do is before I look at my phone in the morning, I'm going to go outside. I live in a house. There are several doors. It, there's lots of exits. <laughs> this is not hard to do. Now it's sometimes the year. It's more pleasant than others. But I thought I just want to be actually in the material world in God's creation. You know, I live on a little in a little town. I'm not surrounded by uh, majestic mountains or anything like that. Just a just a little lawn and some trees and a little stream in the back and whatever my neighbors are doing in their garden across the way. And um, it has been so good to just refrain from using that thing, which now I just leave downstairs. I don't have it next to my bed anymore. And I, I get up, I make some tea. <laughs> That's like my next addiction that I have to ta- tackle is how much I like having my tea in the morning. But I make this- That's your next book there. <laughs> <laughs> the tea, managing tea consumption free life. zero <laughs> cups of tea we'll call it um yeah <laughs> so i do love having my morning tea and that's my little ritual but now i'm doing that rather than while i wait for the tea to brew like racing through email or you know news or whatever i'm just being silent because i'm just waiting those four minutes for the tea to brew <laughs> i pick it up i walk outside and it might just be for 30 seconds it has been so helpful, like just that simple thing. And then yeah. I pick up my phone. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't wait that long, but just waiting long enough that I've actually stepped out. I felt the air on my skin. I've heard whatever's, whatever sounds, the wind, the birds, you know, whatever. Oh, it's been so good. I, and of course, I lived this way uh, more or less for most of my life because I'm 49 years old, 48 years old, whatever I am right now. Uh, I live this way for most of my life, but then this device appeared and suddenly I lost that connection to my embodiment in nature. Um, so reclaiming that has been really great. I mean, that's mm, yes. just one super simple thing. Uh, I honestly think though, uh, I mean, I can talk about some other disciplines that, that I talk about in the book at more length, but it, I really think even just a few very small choices like that really profoundly change our relationship to these devices because it, it's becoming intentional about your life, really. And, and you don't have to, you, you don't have to throw away the device or, you know, completely quit necessarily to have a very profound change that happens when you just decide I'm not going to let the default settings determine how I use this. And I'm not going to let kind of the cultural norms determine how I use it. Um, I mean, another thing our family did uh, that, and this is, we've been doing for longer is just a rhythm of one hour a day, one day a week, and then one or two, hopefully weeks a year, we do turn it all off. And so one hour a day for us is around dinner time now. Uh, one day a week for us is Sunday. And then we have the great gift of being able to go on a, an uninterrupted vacation, uh, usually two weeks in the summer. And during that time, we really do turn all the screens off. <laughs> and, you know, I think of that as a basic Sabbath practice. And I find it just, uh, it, it, it doesn't just affect how good that hour at dinner is and how good that day on Sunday is and how good it is to not have email on vacation, which could be a whole other topic of conversation, how just unbelievably freeing that is. But it actually changes the other day, the other hours in the day, the other days in the week and the other weeks of the year. There's this sense I am not bound by these things. I'm not, I'm not dependent on them. 
I at least know that I can give them up and I don't die and I don't go through withdrawal even anymore. It's just this rhythm of use and non-use of engagement and withdrawal. And I think that's the basic pattern. We all need to figure out what is it that I need to have those patterns with in my life that otherwise I'd become unhealthily dependent upon. Describe the feelings of, that you feel towards the end of that week when you've been off for for a week. I mean, huh. I, you know, I, I know for myself when I do that, I start to feel things that I hadn't felt in a while. Um, is is it that way for you? Uh, what what is the experience like? It's a. I will say it's a little difficult to disengage or disentangle that from. I mean, just the fact that I'm, I've been on vacation and, with yeah, my yeah. with my children and my wife, and we've had this uninterrupted time together, and I've. So I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe the more. Uh, I, I, well, here I will say this. I, uh, oddly, as I've gotten older, I did not expect this to happen. I have struggled more with anxiety. I would say uh, I was not an anxious person in my twenties or even thirties. Uh, for whatever reason, in my forties, I have often found myself with moderate to. I won't say paralyzing. Um, I have friends who have had anxiety disorders. I don't know that I would say it's ever been to that level for me, but just quite notable uh, anxiousness, depression, kind of generalized fear, generalized sadness, like all a bunch of things I didn't think applied to me that I knew were problems for some people, but didn't feel like my issues. I had other things uh, have become a real part of my life. When I step away for a Sunday or for a, an, even just an hour, I, I can tell by the end of that period, these things have less hold over me. Mm. It's, it's very striking. And, and I think that they are, they're fed by my connectedness. Uh, and, and, even my connectedness to positive things. So most of the things that arrive in my email inbox are positive. I don't get lots of hate email or really difficult news by email. Same with social media. I mean, every once in a while you do, but not, that's not my regular diet. Um, and yet I somehow think even that drip, drip, drip of positivity, <laughs> I, I don't, I cannot begin to tell you, Jed, how, how it's connected. I think it is actually connected mm -hmm. to this anxiety. Mm -hmm. And what I actually need in my life is moments when nothing's coming in. When uh, other than the people that I'm actually given to love and do my life with, I need to not feel like the external world is always dripping new stuff in for me to respond to, even if it's positive stuff. Yeah, I, don't I know, really does resonate that with that. Sense? It, I, it does. And I, you know, I feel like the, that feeling of anxiousness wound upness is something I've yes. felt in recent years more, more than ever. And it's the irony that often when I feel that way, I feel most yearning for some further stimulant. It's, it's almost ah. a little bit like, uh, hot sauce where you're eating hot sauce. It's burning your tongue, but you feel like <laughs> if I can take one more bite of hot sauce, it, it actually burns a little bit less for a little bit moment. So you just keep Ooh, wow. shoveling it in. I feel like that about the technology. <laughs> I think, yes, uh, there's something about that. And, and it, yeah, it's medicating with more of the same rather than realizing, oh, actually what I need right now is to step away from this and not have any more news. <laughs> I need to just absorb what this day has been like, what this week has been like, what 
uh, you know, what the look on my wife's face or my children's face means and how I respond to that in a, in a less uh, pressured way maybe than the technology invites me to. Share a little bit about, you, you use the word rhythms, which to me that, that is, it seems like a key part of all this. Every, I mean, from earlier in the conversation, talking about times of eating and times of not eating, times yeah. of work, times yeah. of rest, times of wakefulness, sleep. Um, th- that seems like a key part of all of this. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one of the real problems with really starting with industrialization. So the machine age, when we start to be able to turn the world, which is not a machine, into a machine, or we, uh, we be, be able to make machines in the world. Um, I mean, th- this is not the way human beings have lived. It's not the way the cosmos, I think, is designed. Uh, the cosmos is something vastly more interesting than a machine. But in the industrial era, we, we really discover how to make machines out of the world, and we start building very large-scale machines like factories, and we ask people to fit themselves into that. And here's the thing about machines. They don't get tired. Now, they do sometimes need maintenance, but um, – but if you think about industrialization, like when you when we realized we could harness, say, uh, steam power and multiply human uh, force in that way, uh, that's a huge capital investment. And those machines run best if they run all the time. Uh, it, it, what causes stress on machines is actually stopping and starting. So if you can run your factory 24-7, that's ideal from the – factory owner's point of view. So now we start asking people to work that way. We do three shifts because human beings can't keep going uh, the way machines can, but we can sort of treat people like interchangeable cogs. Well, now this has spread to all of our lives. Now we can have, for example, there used to be a rhythm of day and night. I mean, this is built into the Jewish understanding of of day and night and Sabbath, right? Uh, Sabbath starts when the sun goes down. And you would light some candles, but now I flick a switch and I have as much light in my house as I have during the day. Um, and I could have that all night if I chose. And the, all the devices are designed to stay on. There's no device that says, oh, please turn me off at 9 p.m. <laughs> I mean, none of them, uh, you know, function that way. And many of, and some devices now, like, literally don't have an on off switch. Uh, and, we are not built that way. We are circadian creatures. We have this profound, I mean, we have this ineradicable need for sleep. That's the most basic rhythm is wake and sleep. Um, we also have rhythms, uh, micro rhythms in the day of, of, I mean, we have our digestive rhythms, you know, like you, you drink the tea in the morning, you're going to have to go to the bathroom eventually. Like there's this cycle there. There's a cycle of movement. Um, I'm not made to just sit. But now I have a device. Everything about my device is designed to tell me just keep sitting here and keep working because more emails arriving as we're talking, Jed. <laughs> so I need to sit here longer. When in fact I'm designed to have this variety of motion and and moments of rest and and kind of uh, stillness and then moments of activity. And nothing about really, it's not even just the technological world in the narrow sense of the computer devices, but nothing about the whole industrial world respects that. Whereas when our lives were really about the land and, and other creatures, animals that we domesticated and used to, to help us do our work, well, all those things, you know, the land needs to rest. Uh, the land needs a Sabbath in biblical uh, frame. And, and we're instructed to give the land a Sabbath every seventh year, as well as the Sabbath of the seasons and har- you know, sowing and harvesting and so forth. We used to have all these rhythms built in. And the moment we invented machines, we were like, whoa, this is way better. They work all the time. We can make a lot of money 
honestly. Mm -hmm. And we Mm -hmm. became very rich. We now live in unspeakable affluence, but it's at the price of almost entirely losing the natural rhythms. I was Mm -hmm. just talking with my son last night. Um, My son's 20 years old about how uh, when I was a boy growing up in Massachusetts, Massachusetts still had these things called blue laws uh, that were basically state laws that said most stores had to be closed on Sunday. And it was a foreign idea to him. He was like, what, really? Like, really, all stores? I was like, yeah, except for there were a couple categories that were allowed to be open. And that was such a healthy environment for everyone, especially, by the way, for the vulnerable uh, in the economy, Uh, people who otherwise are going to be given, uh, you know, shifts that aren't good for human beings and that aren't good for family and so forth. Um, Well, we decided in the name of commerce to get rid of those things uh, because they were seen as this kind of relic of religion. Why do we have this? Why can't stores be open on Sunday? And now stores in Massachusetts and all over this this country are open every single day monotonically without, you know, without variation. It's, it's great for commerce. It's terrible for human beings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so now we're going to have to rebuild. I mean, now we have to rebuild them uh, with no we, help. Right. And, and without the external help, because it, exactly. in, in ancient times, there were all kinds of external things, whether the seasons throughout the year, night and day, light and darkness, that always would help remind us of the need for that, those rhythms. Whereas now we, we actually actively have to choose them or we will be swept along in a tide of always onness. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we've we've talked about how this this always onness is is corrosive to many things that actually matter most: the relationships with those we love, um, our own capacity to think about things, and then perhaps especially our our inner life. What do you feel is is particularly the the consequence for that life within? You know, as if 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 we are losing something there, what is perhaps most lost, you know, as we continue this pattern of always onness. Maybe the most profound sentence that's ever been uttered in my hearing was uttered by Leanne Payne, who was a teacher of the spiritual life, um, who died uh, maybe five or so years ago, maybe a little more now. Um, And Leanne Payne said at a conference where I heard her speak, she said this, we either contemplate or we exploit. We either contemplate or we exploit. I really think this is maybe the most powerful thing I've ever heard. Um, and what is she saying? She's basically saying that uh, – So, well, I mean, let's break it down a little bit. So what's contemplation? To contemplate is simply to behold another um, without acting. And what she's saying is if, if I skip that step and – I don't contemplate, but I immediately react or act. Um, let's say you say something to me. Uh, one of my options is to skip the contemplation of whatever you just said or how you said it or who you are in saying it and just go right to, well, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? What's my next move, right? Very tempting, by the way, in, in this kind of interview setting, right, to sort of jump to, oh, it's my, I need to answer. I'm, I'm on a podcast, like my turn to talk. Um, and if I skip that, that moment of contemplation, what I will inevitably do is use you for my ends, which is what exploitation is. I will treat you as a means to my end rather than an end in yourself. And I think the very deep thing that's happening, uh, 
the, the, what I think maybe what is meant by the inner life is opening up that space of contemplation that is not about reacting to the world, but is about being in the world. And if I don't have that space in my life, then I am going to use everyone and everything around me reactively. And that means basically to fuel my fantasies and fears, right? Or fuel my fantasies and allay my fears. I will, by the way, do that, not just in obviously negative ways, but also in ways that look like I'm serving people, doing good things for people, uh, being just, being honorable, but it will actually all be about looking just, uh, relieving my discomfort at injustice in the world. Like there's lots of ways you can do good things that actually are not contemplative. And actually that means you're doing them for your own needs, not to genuinely honor and respect the presence of God in all things, but especially the presence of God in the image bearers of God. And it just seems to me we live 24-7, as we like to say, in an environment that is is preventing us from contemplating. And thus, that is continually at inviting us to exploit and that also of course is implicating us in systems of exploitation that aren't a matter of our own individual agency but i'm just now embedded in a system that never contemplates um and and that therefore always uses and this has differential effects depending on how vulnerable you are in that system so for me as a powerful privileged person in many ways i benefit from that uncontemplative system that doesn't let anything shut down for even one minute uh i like my always on internet i like being able to go to target on sunday if i forgot to get something on saturday that's convenient for me but I benefit from that because I have a lot of privilege and power. But there are other people in that system who really, really don't benefit and who are not seen as human by that system. So I think that's what's really the deep – I mean, it it sort of goes all the way down to the most inmost part of me, but it also goes all the way up and out to the, the big structures of our society that no longer can honor the image of God in, in persons, which is the, the root of injustice. So that lost ability to contemplate – both corrodes our relation with others because we are not present with them, we are not attentive to what they are really saying, and, and then and at the deeper level, it, we lose our capacity to contemplate our Heavenly Father, be fully present to Him, attentive exactly. to His voice. And if those two things are missing, then all we are is just going about as as beasts seeking to fill our own our own wow. voracious needs. Right, and and really, this is so profound when it comes to God our maker, redeemer, sustainer, father, because the only thing you can do with God is contemplate him. You, you're not meant to exploit him. And in the end, you can't. And he's not a genie. Like, you know, it's alarming how much of my conversation with God, I mean, yesterday I was preparing for a talk that I was giving last night, which I was a little behind on preparing. And I found myself praying with this great intensity, like, oh God, I really need your help with this. Well, that's not God's job, like to make up for the fact that I didn't create enough space in my life to really prepare well to like, hey, hey, you know, parachute in Holy Spirit, (laughs) help this go well. Like all God really wants from me is that I would be with him. Um, it's really interesting, uh, when Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, it says Jesus called the apostles and it says to be with him. And then it says, and to teach and preach and I think cast out demons. But the first thing is just to be with God. Because any other relationship to God that doesn't start with being with God is actually trying to use God. 
And and in fact, because the true God does exploitation put, once again, it's right? exploitation, and the true God doesn't actually put up with that. He's like, I, I'm not going to let you use me that way. Um, and so, really, what we do is we make a false we make a false image of God. We, if we're Christians, we can even call it God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it actually bears very little resemblance to the true God. And it's it's this idol because what idols actually always do is they say, oh, you can totally exploit me. I, I'm here to make a deal with you. You give me something, mm-hmm. I'll give you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing is that idols always lie, and the one who gets end up ends up getting exploited by it is us um, because they can't actually deliver. Whereas the true God, all he wants is our presence with him. And I am so bad at giving God the one thing that I'm actually made for with him and and instead trying to jump uh, over that to the action and exploitation. Uh, so these, this is very, very deep, right? And, and this is perennial. Like human beings have always struggled with this. This wisdom comes from way before the technological age. It's just that we have way more power to act non-contemplatively now than we've ever had. Hmm. So what, what, uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, Andy, what encouragement might you have for someone who is, you know, perhaps they're towards the front end of a, of a vocational orientation toward mercy and justice. They're, they're heading out and they recognize that their relationship with technology is going to have a profound impact both on their ability to, as you put it, contemplate or be fully present to attend to the deeper needs of the people they're serving, as well as to, at a, at a deeper level, attend to the presence of God and draw their life from that first and foremost as they go into this. What encouragements overall would you have in terms of their relationship with technology? I might suggest taking some time to reflect, journal, whatever. What gives? What has given me, over the long run, the deepest satisfaction in my life? And I would hope that you'll uncover some sources of beauty, some kinds of relationships, some maybe some certain activities. I mean, for me, it's being on a bicycle has just given me some of the greatest joy in my life, I would say, most lasting joy. Uh, eating with people <laughs> has been another. Make a list of those things and then find ways in the midst of the service and sacrifice that you're called to, which is real for all of us, but especially people who are kind of going to the heart of need and injustice. And then make sure you have more of that in your life than you have technology. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that technologically mediated experiences are not going to be on that list. Uh, and I think it's dangerous to try to just subtract things from our lives. Like, so, so it might be tempting to say, oh, well, you know, spend less time on social media or something like that. I think the best way to spend less time on social media is actually to build my life around unmediated sociality. And <laughs> like, displace I, the social media. Exactly. And, ju- and then the more, uh, like, there need, there need to be deep wells in our lives that we can go back to. And I think they, they, you know, they come in the form of friends. They come in the form of certain kinds of experiences that, that each of us is especially wired to appreciate. My daughter is very visual. She's just wired to create visually and to make little paintings. She's not going to do that as her, her job or her profession, but, but it gives her this deep satisfaction. I do not, that doesn't happen when I try to paint something. <laughs> no satisfaction comes at all. Um, but whatever that deep well is of creativity, of connection, pathways to prayer pathways to gratitude uh we need to we need to build those into our lives with the same kind of discipline that we build the sacrificial part of our lives because they 
they actually, I think, feed one another. And Jesus did this. I mean, it was, I don't know exactly what it was like for Jesus to be at these feasts where people called him a drunkard and a glutton. Uh, but I suspect, I, I'm sure what he, he didn't care about the intoxicating alcohol. I don't think Jesus ever pursued that false form of elation. But I suspect that he loved being with people who were unselfconsciously with him, which is what the sinners are. The saints are always self-conscious or the Pharisees are always self-conscious. The drunkards and the gluttons are not. And so he went to these feasts. He went to weddings and turned water into wine. And he also went out into the hills and uh, instead of just answering more demands, spent time with his father. If we build those things into our lives, I think then we will have the, mm, the vantage point from which to look at our use of all this useful technology and make sure it's merely useful <laughs> and not taking over. So I'd rather you actually think about the deep satisfactions and committing yourself to those deep satisfactions uh, than that you worry that much about your technology. Build your life around the deep best things and the shallow things will just sort of get stuck in their place and they'll be helpful to you when they need to be, but you won't be owned by them and you'll have a life that actually has something to offer the world in the name of, of God, your Father. One of the things I so appreciated about what Andy shared was his call to intentionality in our use of technology, actively deciding when, where, and how we'll let technology occupy our lives. The truth is, if we do not decide these things, someone else will decide for us. It will likely be Silicon Valley engineers, New York marketing teams, and programmers in India whose brilliant minds and billions of dollars are utterly devoted to entering every moment of our days. Their devices will be the first to greet us in the morning. They'll join us at the dinner table and snuggle up to us in bed at night. If we are to be the boss of our technology rather than vice versa, it's not enough to want it to be different. We must make plans regarding technology's proper place, when and how we will let it in to serve a positive purpose, and where we'll choose to limit technology so we can be fully present to other things that matter more. These decisions won't be easy, but they offer us a tremendous opportunity. Making countercultural choices about technology offers us a chance to live in ways that are refreshingly different from the world around us, more present to the people in our lives, more deeply connected as families and communities, more healthy both in body and soul from chosen rhythms of work and rest, noise and quiet, stimulation and calm. In short, the decisions we make or fail to make about our technology use may have more impact than any other on the health of our marriages, our families, our friendships, and the vitality of our souls as well. If you'd like to dig deeper on this theme, I'd certainly recommend Andy's new book, The TechWise Family. I'd also want to share with you an article I wrote for the Washington Post last December titled, Here's the Best Thing You Can Do for Your Life in 2017. We'll link to both on the show notes for this podcast on the CAFO website. But most of all, let me encourage you, Choose just one idea spurred by today's conversation and make a simple commitment to put it into practice. Most of the time, that's where real change starts. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Menefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit CAFO.org.